Voice of Fintech. Welcome to Voice of Fintech, a podcast mapping out the Swiss and global fintech scene, connecting fintech enthusiasts with startups, incubators, accelerators, business angels and VCs, and incumbents interested in partnerships. Voice of Fintech will help you navigate the fintech ecosystem. Here you can listen to the startup founder stories, what investors and incumbents are looking for when dealing with startups, and find out more about resources provided by incubators and accelerators. My name is Rudy Fallad and I'll be hosting this podcast. Hello and welcome to Voice of Fintech. Today we're going to travel to New York City and we're going to talk to Elliot and we're going to talk about M&A, we're going to talk about Fintech M&A and the crypto and everything around it because maybe you're a founder, you want to exit, maybe you're an investor, you want to buy something. Either way, what's going on in this world, right? Because of course we've entered some choppy waters this year and uh, you know they may be a bit more difficult for some people than others so let's find some clarity here so how are you today elliot really fantastic thanks for having me big fan of the podcast great stuff great stuff and how did you get to do what you do today and i didn't mean did you take a subway today to the office or what but what drove you to what you do today for a living yeah, it's the journey. It's the journey through financial services. And it really started for me, the trading room. The trading room in the late 90s and early 2000s was, in my view, the center of the universe. There was a lot of activity happening on trading desks. You had a lot of people, a lot of energy, a lot of chi, and there was, it felt like the center of the world. And primarily it was because that was where all the information was flowing for all industries and particularly in capital markets and Wall Street and stock exchanges and the like. So I started at Bank of America on the cash equities trading desk where you learn a lot. You learn a lot about information asymmetry. You learn a lot about how to take advantage of edges that you develop. And you learn a lot about technology. Um, one thing that is very fascinating is uh, how quickly technology moves. And one of my first stints was actually on the floor of the New York Stock Exchange, where you had brokers that were uh, or people on the exchange, physical people on the exchange. And you fast forward 15 years and it's a glorified TV studio. So I followed that, that journey. Leaving uh, Bank of America and a large financial services company, I actually went into consulting for bulge bracket investment banks. And what I learned in that stint was what type of company I didn't want to work for, which were the large bureaucratic organizations that were difficult to operate within and, and more importantly, difficult to, to have a career in. I was fortunate to get the opportunity following consulting to join a startup. It was my first one, and that was Perella Weinberg Partners. And Perella Weinberg Partners, led by Joe Perella and Peter Weinberg, put together a very interesting model. And that model was how can we extrapolate two of the key businesses within a financial services institutions, those being objective advisory services, middle market, boutique investment banking, 
and a buy side investment platform. And that's important because it hadn't been done before. And if there wasn't the presence and the reputation of having a Joe Perella and Peter Weinberg, it would have been very difficult for the organization to have become as successful as it became. I came on to help build out the alternative asset management platform. And the thesis there was very interesting because we were just coming out of hedge funds where a lot of portfolio managers were creating a new investment asset class, hedge funds, and they were having broader success. The challenge that they were having was when you raise $1 of institutional capital, there are a number of responsible things that a fund must do in order to meet due diligence. And that has everything to do with trading, operations, accounting, legal and compliance, marketing, investor relations, and lastly, technology. If you don't have strong institutional grade processes and platform, you're not going to be able to, to take and raise capital from institutional investors. And as portfolio managers came to this realization, Corella Weinberg said, let's go and build that platform. Let's go and build that platform that really provides that institutional grade infrastructure for portfolio managers who would like to run their alternative investment strategies. So that is what we uh, went to build. We built that 14 different funds, strategies, 40 different fund vehicles. At our peak, we were 14 billion in AUM, and it was a fascinating journey to be a part of. While I was at Perella Weinberg building that, Bitcoin popped onto the radar in 2014, where I wrote a report on Bitcoin and whether or not our firm could actually invest into it. The results of that were we weren't because it was not an institutional grade asset class in 2014. But that is when I, that is when I bought my first Bitcoin. Two corollaries to where, how I got to where I am today. The first I had mentioned was the New York Stock Exchange becoming a glorified TV studio within 15 years. That is what I refer to as the velocity of innovation. Innovation moves so quickly that something as historical and prominent and important as the New York Stock Exchange became essentially obsolete. That's because of technology. So in looking at blockchain and crypto, when that started to hit, uh, it was apparent to me that this could be a the next emerging technology. And so I took the leap of faith and jumped in full time in 2018 and have been navigating in the world of blockchain, crypto and the financial use cases since. Great stuff. So tell us about your firm, Architect Partners. What's your approach to advising on fintech transactions? What's the angle connection to technology, as you said, and crypto? Are you only advising incumbents that want to get into this space or the founders that want to get out of this space and cash out? Just uh, clarify a little bit, what's your angle? Architect Partners is a blockchain and crypto dedicated M&A and strategic financing advisory team. So from a founder perspective, we help founders and executive teams with raising capital. And we also help them as they begin to consider what strategic options are like in the coming 
18 to, to 36 months, which many times includes an exit. From a investor perspective, we are able to help investors that are seeking to understand how to invest into this technology and where they should be focusing and just as importantly, where they should not be focusing. Uh, and finally, from a strategics or from traditional institutions, our view is that every traditional institution will at some point need to implement some blockchain or crypto asset related solution in their business. We view this very much as table stakes going forward. And so we help those traditional institutions with understanding what, how the technology is evolving and where they may want to think about making their investments and, and having a presence. All right. Let's clarify, though, because you said you're an M&A advisor. So we're talking about controlling stakes, changing hands, right? Not fundraising. We, right? we do both. But yes, we do a lot of we are okay. very active on the M&A side as well. All right. So fundraising and M&A. Now, so that this makes sense for you economically, do you have a minimum size, minimum ticket or how does this work? Yeah, typically we work with companies that are Series A and later mm -hmm. stage. Um, a lot of the reason is because uh, we are able to best engage with investors and strategics, typically at the growth stage of companies. So that is where our sweet spot, uh, that's where our sweet spot is. And in terms of numbers, what does that mean? So from a capital raising perspective, Typically, companies are in that one to five million annual revenue range. That is when that's when you start to be seeing the product market fit. You start to see what is next from a growth perspective. So uh, that profile of a company is where we can be most helpful. I see. All right. Understood. So Obviously, the markets took a beating in last 12 months, especially when it comes to tech and especially when it comes to fintech as well. And whether you're private, obviously, people value you based on comps as well to public markets. So times are a bit tougher. But what would you advise people? What are the key trends that you see recently, but also going forward when it comes to fintech M&A and fundraising, as you said? Yeah, I'd, I'd argue that we're, the market is in a healthier position than it was in 21 and 22. Uh, and many that struck a high valuation may not agree with that, or they may agree in 2023. But some of the multiples that we were seeing, were they were very puzzling. A lot of high value marks were printed, and I don't know if that was sustainable. And that was both in private markets and in public markets. So in 2023, the majority of this year, the story has been there is still a big gap uh, between valuation spreads on, on the buyer side and on the seller side. And we will continue to see that spread compress as executive teams and founders become more accepting of the current valuation environment, because right now buyers they understand that they are in control. They understand that we are in a difficult macro environment and they understand that companies that are looking to sell themselves may not feel like they are in a painful position. And so they are happy to be patient. They're happy to stay on the sidelines and observe as uh, the market evolves. What are the, some of the key metrics? Previously, 
a lot of metrics were around who's your team, what technology have you built, and how big is your TAM, your, your total addressable market. Um, as we think about the key metrics in 2023, those questions are now, who is your customer? What is their profile? What are they paying you for? And how much are they paying you for it? And these new, they're not new KPIs, but they're more focused today. And what that does is it makes founders and executive teams concentrate on their operating discipline, which I think is very important because investment discipline has increased. Operating discipline must increase. And therefore, we believe that we're going to have better outcomes as an industry uh, for fintech going forward. 2023 has been difficult, but I characterize we're in a healthier position. And going forward, I believe that we'll have better outcomes for all market participants, having learned from uh, the, the euphoria of 2021 and 22. So we talked about valuation, we talked about bid-ask spread. Uh, let's also talk about exit options, right? I mean, even before 2023, you could have seen that the average time to go public or exit has increased tremendously, right? Since your times on the New York Stock Exchange floor. So what are the other options? What can people do if they had enough of this? They had enough of the startup life and they just want to enjoy life. So they'd like to exit and provide some liquidity for their employees that they've been promising good good outcome for a long time because they couldn't pay them in cash. How do you yeah. see this? Is the going public still the mantra? And if you cannot or you it takes longer, what else can you do? Yeah, going public has been difficult. Obviously, we're in one of the slowest IPO environments that I think we've seen in a very long time. There was the SPAC experimental phase that did not necessarily work as well as many expected or worked just like many thought it would work, SPACs being still a four-letter word. I think there's important things to consider. Number one, is your company ready? Many companies are not ready to be publicly traded entities. There is a significant responsibility and discipline that, mu that a firm must have in order to be, be and continue to be a publicly traded company. So those options are, they're difficult. And as you had mentioned before, the lead times on that are long. And finally, you are essentially at the mercy of a macro market of when the IPO actually lists and launches. So the public path is difficult. The other paths you have are either strategic buyers or financial buyers, i.e. private equity funds. What's important in both of those scenarios is building relationships. M&A is now becoming a relationship-driven outcome. What do I mean by that? Previously, you would be able to say, hey, I can go hire architect partners. We can run a process for six months. We can bring interested buyers to the table and then sell our company after a six to nine month process. That has evolved. Why has that evolved? When you are asking a buyer to purchase your company, you are asking an individual, a person to put their career on the line, that buying that company is the right thing for that business or for that fund. Uh, if you look at it just from a person perspective, we're coming out of an environment where there was a lot of people 
that made buying decisions that didn't work out the way they thought it would work out, given the whole macro environment and, and where we are today. So you need to be able to convince that person that you as a founder and your executive and management teams as leadership are worth someone betting their career on. And how do you do that? That is a relationship-driven transaction. You need to get to know the person. They need to get to know you. They need to understand how your company is operating in difficult times, which is right now. It's easy for everyone to do well when markets are high and revenues are generated everywhere. But when you are in more difficult market environments, that is when you find out who has the ability to properly lead an organization and either evolve the business model or transition it into the next up cycle. You got to be having these fostering these relationships early on. And it usually takes 12 to 12 to 24 months in order to get somebody, an individual who is making the investment decision comfortable with your business. So in this particular time, having the, the conversations with, we call it our architect partners, acquiring your acquirer, having conversations with those decision makers is essential because they want to watch you through the challenging times so that when the better times are coming, they can be prepared. They can go to their investment committee and say, ah, I know that team. I've been following them for 18 months. I feel comfortable that they are a great organization. Absolutely. Great point about M&A world is about relationships, right? So relationship means you need to spend time and invest some energy in it before you can call it a relationship, right? Exactly. Now, you touched on the SPACs, which is interesting. This has been this has been a very popular buzzword <laughs> lately, but it fizzled out. So what's your view on what's the status quo? Is this something that was just a fad and we're just going to go back to the normal doing way of things or not? Yeah, I don't know if there's a normal way of doing things going forward, but I, I do not expect SPACs to be as prominent as they were in the past couple of years. And it, and it ultimately comes down to companies that aren't ready to be public. And we had a scramble on some of the names were high quality from a SPAC perspective, but a lot of what we saw was companies reaching for uh, SPACs, reaching for companies that were just a little bit too early. They weren't mature enough to be a publicly traded entity. And so I, I, I'm not sure if it was SPAC driven. It, the number of SPACs likely accelerated the number of companies that were too early towards the publicly traded Toward, uh, too early to being publicly traded. Um, but I, I think the lesson going forward is that companies need to be properly prepared to do that. And so that's the biggest learning that, that we had found is making sure that you don't go too early because there is, you are a very different company when you become publicly traded and there are a significant number of responsibilities that are required and most companies that are getting out of growth mode and then into potential exit mode, they may not be ready for that yet. Great point. You got to be ready to be a public company, whether there is a appealing shortcut to it or not, right? At the end of the day, the truth will come out. 
right? That's how I would <laughs> translate for myself. Yes, exactly. And audit is a very simple one, right? If you haven't gone through a very deep audit, you're not going to be public market ready. And so we talked about public markets, private markets, PACs. Let's also chop it across the fintech verticals. Obviously, payments and lending were probably the first areas where fintech grew. So maybe you could expect that these would be the ones where you see most consolidation playing out. But also another popular subsector was and was BNPLs, right? And you see a lot of those companies also suffering a huge drop in value. So maybe it's not only about having too many small players, but it's also about some of the players losing steam. What, where do you see consolidation most likely happening across various verticals? Yes, payments is, is certainly a place that is ripe for that. And Money 2020 is, is next week, which I'll be going to. It'll be fascinating to see what the environment is from an energy perspective, from a current state of companies and where they are thinking. It's fascinating how quickly payments have evolved and continue to evolve here. Because payments have a, 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 a business model that is relatively understood and they have uh, revenues that can be accurately tracked, I do believe that there will be increase in payment M&A via acquisitions uh, going forward. There is still a significant amount of payments. You still have a significant regulatory component, i.e. you have to be proper licensing uh, in regions in order to participate in certain regions. As the world gets smaller, groups that are seeking to have global presence will be making acquisitions in specific and in, in geographically specific regions. So I think we're going to start seeing uh, start seeing some of that occur from the and, and certainly when you think about payments and, and going into kind of the more blockchain side of things, there, there will be a significant amount of activity. The data shows us that uh, payments and what crypto and blockchain related companies have built from an infrastructure perspective, we expect them to be acquired by fintechs because fintechs understand that they need to have a presence in that asset class and it gives them a, a much better full picture for larger acquirers to then come, uh, come in and acquire fintechs. So we think that is that's going that a thesis will play out. From the lending side, lending is going to be a little bit tougher. The interest rates, given the interest rate environment being so high, a lot of the math just doesn't work on the lending side. And we continue to be, particularly here in the US, we're at the all-time highs from the amount of credit that currently exists in the system everywhere you look, student loans and, and car loans and, and housing loans and, and credit card debts. We'll see how the lending environment plays out given where interest rates are. The, the areas that I think are interesting that for fintech needs to pay attention to is identity and provenance. Who is making the payment? Who is receiving the payment? And there, there is technology has moved so quickly, a lot of Bad actors are using tech in, in bad ways. So I think a lot of the identity and provenance 
of a counterparty and a transaction, that is going to be an area that both payments and lending are going to have to really lean in on because of its importance going forward. All right. So that's a nice segue to talking about crypto and Bitcoin. So you mentioned at the very beginning, you were fascinated by technology. You first bought your Bitcoin a long time ago. Obviously, it's a new technology. So it always happened that there were bad actors attracted to it as well. And they may be giving it a bad name, right? But what attracted you specifically to crypto if you just double down on this crypto M&A or crypto yeah, investments? Can you elaborate on it a little bit more? Yeah, I believe that uh, blockchain as a technology will be as impactful to human society as the Internet. And I do think that blockchain and its, some of its core tenants, such as trust and validating trust, will be important as it integrates with other emerging technologies like AI in particular, in terms of making sure that AI remains leveraged in a safe way. So the technology, I believe, is uh, it will be transformative, and that's why I dedicated my career to it. Why M&A and capital raising? Mostly it's because I can help propel the industry forward in the right way. Unfortunately, as you had alluded to, the industry has gone through some uh, number of expected early stage ups and downs. But we, I do believe that we're setting up for our next move higher. And as we get to that next move higher, it's really important for new market participants, both institutional and retail, to be able to trust the companies, uh, the products and the people that are leading the blockchain and crypto industry forward. And so we are able at Architect Partners to surround ourselves with high quality people that who do things the right way. And so when we surround ourselves with those people and we propel the industry forward, we believe we're going to have good outcomes. So when you think about so as a whole, right now, people kind of joke, Bitcoin is boring and less volatile. We're in this 25 to 30,000 range. That's a great story. That is fantastic. That shows that the asset class is maturing and that it is getting ready for, for increased adoption. So we like where the price of Bitcoin is. And I say setting up for a move higher because the number of institutional market participants that we're seeing announced on a near daily basis, but I'll just call it weekly basis, is astounding, right? First... This week, we had JP Morgan and Barclays performing an OTC derivatives trade using BlackRock's tokenized money market fund as collateral. That's a great, that's a lot that I said in one sentence, but it's important to see those names participating. And it's great to see the non-speculative use case, i.e. collateralization, being used with the technology. Fantastic. From a global perspective, we have regions like Singapore and the Monetary Authority of Singapore with Project Guardian. They have almost every traditional financial institution based in Asia involved in Project Guardian. And I was just in Singapore, just met many of those financial institutions. You couldn't have made that statement two years ago. Uh, you have areas such as the Middle East and all the things that are happening in UAE and Europe with, with Mika and the regulatory environment there, all of this is tracking institutional market participants 
And that includes asset managers, banks, brokerages, payments, as we were talking about. All these companies are now involving themselves in the technology. Yes, we're still early, but you ask the question, are we going to see more or less of this participation and adoption? In my view, it's resoundingly more. And that's why I believe we're setting up for this next move higher. It's very exciting for companies and founders and executive teams who are building these products and solutions on the technology because all of these groups will be asking a question, buy versus build versus invest versus partner. And that type of interest is going to be fantastic for the industry. Absolutely. I think these are the questions really people should ask and you clarified it beautifully. So before I let you go, I have two easy questions for you. Maybe the first one is, what is the most impactful business book for you that you would like to recommend or any other source for education and learning? Yeah, I, I love being in this industry because we learn new things every day. And part of being dedicated to this technology is being is going as deep as possible. So <laughs> it ha- actually, the, the answer isn't a book, but it happens to be Uh, following all the news and trying to understand the use cases of the headlines. That is where I learn and and absorb as much information as possible. It's not a, it's a weak answer, but there's so much that is happening. A book that was written like FTX's and Michael Lewis's book, that's dated already. The biggest thing about the FTX conference or trial is that nothing new came out. The whole industry learned what was happening in real time. And because of that real time activity and being able to follow that news, follow what's happening, that makes it, that makes learning every day fun and exciting. Make, just making sure that you are following up to date on all the different announcements and then trying to read and really understand what those announcements mean. All right, but if you miss the news for a little bit, you can check out this book and then catch up on the latest, right? To who is in prison and who is not. Exactly. <laughs> All right. And what's the best way to reach out and what kind of people would you like to hear from most? Yeah, architectpartners.com. We have all of our content out there. All of our emails are out there as well. So please do reach out. And in terms of who we like reaching out to, we love talking with passionate founders and executive teams. We love talking to investors who are actively considering or actively investing in the blockchain and crypto ecosystem. And then finally, if you're a a senior leader at any traditional company that has questions on how should my company be leveraging this technology and participating as this industry grows, please reach out. We'd love to have a conversation. Wonderful. So thank you so much, Elliot, and good luck to you and Architect Partners. Thank you very much, Rudy. Thank you for listening to Voice of Fintech podcast. If you haven't already, check out also voiceoffintech.com, where you will find all the episodes and additional resources related to the podcast. You can also subscribe to Voice of Fintech on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google, or any other podcast app that you like. If you have any suggestions on the topics or guests or how to make this podcast better for you, please email us at info at Happy to hear from you. Thank you.